Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. You're listening to Feast Meets West, the show where we tell the story behind your favorite Asian dishes. Instead of calling in from Hong Kong, this is Iris Van Kirkhove in the studio in person today. And sitting next to me is my lovely co-host, Linda Liu. Hello. We are broadcasting from Heritage Radio Network at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Every episode, Linda and I dig deep on a dish or an aspect of Asian cuisine and talk to experts on the topic to learn more. But before we get into today's show, Iris and I like to kick off the episode with a question for each other, and that is, what's the best thing you ate in the past week? Well, it's going to be a tough one for me this week, because I just went to Toronto, which I've come to realize is an amazing food city. Mm -hmm. I had so much good food, but I think my best dining out experience was at Bar Isabel, Spanish tapas place. Mm-hmm. Um, everything there was amazing, but um, I think the thing I have to mention is the dessert, which is weird because dessert, uh, you know, it's not my favorite, but they have this thing called the Basque cake, mm-hmm. and there was just so much hype around it. Like we were looking up Yelp reviews, and everyone was like, the cake is life changing. You oh, have to get it. Okay. And then the people sitting next to us were like, I can't wait for the Basque cake. And then when we got it, they were like, oh my God, you got the Basque cake. I'm so excited for you. Um, and I have to say, it was really good. It was so simple, but just well executed. And that's my favorite kind of dessert. Is it like Instagrammable, or is it just like taste wise? No, not really. Yeah, just taste wise, it's just great. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, how about you, Linda? Um, so over the past weekend, I was at um, one of my best friend's uh, bachelorette, like my first bachelorette experience ever. Um, and part of the weekend was spent on a boat where everything just happens to taste better when you're on a boat. <laughs> Does it? I don't know. <laughs> when you're, uh, you know, cruising on a catamaran with the sun shining uh, and wind in your hair. Um, but we had some amazing, like, grilled foods. Um, so my friend Suzanne, her family did, like, an amazing job, like, hosting us and cooking. And so they grilled everything. And we had these, like, um, teriyaki grilled shrimp skewers Ew. that were just, like, perfect. Sounds good. Yeah. Nice. So seasonal food has been a hot topic for a long time. Uh, Here in New York, we love seasonal produce, and many restaurants are inspired by local seasonal ingredients. At the same time, New Yorkers love eating different cultures' cuisines, yet we rarely stop to think about what seasonality means for these cuisines, because we're so used to seeing the same dishes served year-round. 
Today we're going to be talking about seasonal vegetables and Chinese cuisine. That in of itself is too large a topic because China is a big country with many different cuisines. But we have the perfect guest on the show today to talk about some of the seasonal vegetables in Chinese cooking to look out for, and one vegetable in particular that's near and dear to his heart, xiangchun, also known as Chinese mahogany, Chinese tune, or red tune. Yeah, that's right. Joining us in the studio to talk about xiangchun and other seasonal vegetables in Chinese cuisine is Jonathan Wu of the restaurant Feng Tu. A little bit about Jonathan. He decided to pursue his passion for food after he graduated from college, and embarked on a period of culinary study. He attended the French Culinary Institute and has worked in France, Spain, Italy. In New York, he was executive sous chef of Geisha before taking a chef de partie position at Per Se. These days, Jonathan Wu serves American Chinese food at his restaurant Feng Tu.、Um, he combines home-cooked flavors with seasonal, regional ingredients. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, tell us,、uh, where did you grow up, and how did that shape your passion for food? I grew up in suburban Hartford, Connecticut, <laughs> and I. My passion for food.、Um, I think I was born with it. I was a big fat Buddha baby, and、uh, <laughs> very、um, lucky and auspicious. <laughs> yeah,、so、I had big earlobes, I suppose, and a big belly, and、uh, I loved to eat.、Um, my parents worked a lot, and、uh, so growing up, if I were to figure out how to make, I had to figure out how to make a snack for myself.、Um, so I suppose I got into cooking that way. Um, and I was also fortunate to grow up with a mother who loves to cook and、um, made really tasty home cooked food, whether it be Chinese inspired or American.、Um, it was quite eclectic. Okay, what are some examples of stuff you grew up eating? Things like、um, beef and romaine lettuce stir fried together.、Um, uh, Pig's foot broth with、um, star anise and cinnamon, and、um, hard cooked eggs and different kinds of tofu,、um, chili, <laughs>、um, <laughs> different kinds of pasta concoctions. My mother would mix、um, portobello mushrooms and ham and、um, garlic and um, pasta. Um, so it was quite、um, a large spectrum of different foods. Cool. And did you teach yourself to cook、uh, when you had to figure out how to feed yourself, or you know, did you cook with your mom a lot? Both.、Um, as far as the former,、uh, learning to cook,、um, I was good at using the microwave. <laughs> And uh,、um, yeah, my, when my mother would make things like dumplings,、um, I would sit with her at the table and. Learn how to pleat the dumplings and figure, and she would tell me what was in the mix.、Um, so to this day, I really do kind of subscribe to her、um, idea of an ideal dumpling filling, which is a lot of vegetables. She usually used about a, fat, a half to a third meat, usually ground pork,、mm -hmm. and then mung bean sprouts,、um, chopped spinach,、um, lots of vegetables. And、um, to this day, I like to put sprouts in my dumplings. Cool. Um, did you think you were going to end up in food when you were younger? No, I、um, I really had no idea what <laughs> <laughs> what I wanted to be or what I was going to do.、Um, I suppose I discovered it later on in life、um, when I was in college.、Uh, 
Um, you were an English major, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess I, the well-worn joke, um, English major, uh, major, it's basically, uh, I don't know what I want to do with my life. That was the major. <laughs> and uh, so I chose English, something very broad and I suppose versatile. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, as I was winding down my college career, I had to make a decision and um, that's when I decided to cook. Uh, I thought about what I love to do. Um, so I love to eat and I've always enjoyed working with my hands. Um, I grew up playing lots of sports. So physicality and teamwork were things I enjoy. Um, I wasn't a great student. I wasn't a bad student. Um, somewhere in between. Um, but my favorite classes when I thought about it were usually art classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought about all those things. I suppose I was being practical. Um, yeah. <laughs> that seems like a logical, uh, thought process for sure. And yeah. So then I started washing dishes after college and that, that was my first kitchen job. Oh, okay. So who are your food inspirations, um, or food role models, both from the past and now? Um, my mother, um, she's, it's so cliched for chef to say it, but, um, she has her cooking and her flavors have been the biggest single influence on my cooking. Mm. Um, and as far as influence from professional cooking, I mean, um, everybody I've really worked with, I I feel like, um, that that was the idea when I start when I started cooking was like oh I'm gonna try and um, create a path where I can work with a lot of people um, with the idea of learning being the number one thing so um, I interned at Blue Hill when I was in culinary school and I think it segues nicely into the topic of seasonal foods mm-hmm. um, in suburban Hartford Connecticut in the 80s and 90s. Um, I was not in touch <laughs> with <laughs> with notions of seasonality. Um, so in 2002, the spring of 2002, I interned at Blue Hill, and it was it was very eye opening. There were things sure. like morel mushrooms and ramps and asparagus and brook trout and nettles and um, soft shell crabs, and it um, it was wonderful. As it uh, it it's it made a huge impression on me because to this day I try to subscribe to that as much as possible. Nice. Can you tell us about the concept of your restaurant, Feng Tu, and what you do there? Yes. Um, Feng Tu means wind and soil, and then together um, the dry definition is of or pertaining to a locality, something like cultural terroir. Um, but I asked my, I don't really speak Chinese well, so I asked my grandfather what the characters mean together. And he defined them as hometown cooking culture. Mm. Um, and by culture, a big part of it would be the ingredients, but it's also the, um, it has to do with the people and the times and the habits of the era and, um, and the habits of the, the micro neighborhoods within New York. So, um, Feng Tu is located on Lower Lower Orchard Street on the um, border of Chinatown in the Lower East Side. And so I feel like the restaurant also embodies that very particular position um, 
where in Chinatown I can go five blocks and get fresh rice noodles um, or walk five blocks the other direction to Essex Market and find Latin ingredients, different dried chilies or Mexican chorizo. Um, and they're all represented in the food. So um, it is that hometown cooking culture. That's right. awesome. Um, so speaking of seasonality and vegetables, um, we're super curious to hear your story around Xiangchun. Um, it's not typically um, or like ever used here in the <laughs> States. Um, you know, growing up from like a northern Chinese family and having, you know, lived in Beijing, um, I've been fortunate to like try this dish um, when my like grandmother um, chops it up and stirs fry it with egg. Um, but for our listeners, I, I feel like they probably don't know what it is. Jonathan, could you just maybe start by describing what it looks like, what it tastes like, where it comes from? Yeah. Um, so uh, tuna sinensis is the Latin name for the tree. It's a tree. Um, the leaves are arrow-shaped and about half the size of, uh, say, a pinky. Um they uh when they first um sprout they are um like an oxblood red and they slowly turn into um more of a uh, like a green like an army green color um as far as the tree in the tr so this tree uh was brought from china either as a sapling or seeds um by a friend of my grandmother um to her house in Yonkers, uh, the suburbs of New York City. It's about 40 minutes outside the city. Um, and at this point, the tree is probably 40 feet tall. And um, it's huge. And it grows kind of like a weed. There are these shoots that pop off of the roots. And those mm -hmm. are the ones that are more accessible to me on the ground. Mm -hmm. So the leaves will um, sprout in, um, I'd say, April, late April to May. And um, it's a big tree. So I think my grandmother probably planted it in the 60s or so. So my whole life it's been in, in their yard. But um, I didn't know about it or I wasn't even interested in it until I started cooking and in my mid-20s. Um, and so cooking for me has been it's very important to me because well cooking Chinese food mm -hmm. in particular is very important to me because it's my deepest connection to Chinese culture and um, not just Chinese culture broad in a broad sense but also like my family history mm -hmm. and it was kind of a gateway to these conversations with my grandparents and I was like oh so I, my, my grandmother, I knew she, I know she, well, knew she passed. So she, I knew she had um, a really green thumb. Mm. And when I started cooking, I was like, oh, you know, what kind of edible foods do you have in the garden? <laughs> and she was like, oh, well, there's this tree. And just like, like Linda, like, um, she, she's like, oh, yeah, we, we've harvested it, chop it up, and then fold it into scrambled eggs. And in speaking with a lot of different, um, Chinese Americans, like they had mentioned that, yeah, that's if they've heard of the leaf, they're like of tune leaves. That's typically the preparation mm -hmm. with eggs. Um, so, uh, 
I knew that um, for me, that was the point of inspiration, point of departure. It had to be tune leaves and eggs. Mm-hmm. So in creating a dish, I thought about that. and um, But I wanted to... The leaves are so beautiful when yeah. they're fresh. And uh, I should describe the flavor. Um, they're garlicky. They're um, minerally. Um, and then they have this wild quality that um, only non-cultivated foods have Mm. um, something that nettles have and ramps Mm -hmm, have mm -hmm. Um, and they're somehow so Chinese in flavor but then so unfamiliar it's it's it was so mind-blowing the first time I tasted them I knew immediately it was a thunderbolt it was like how old were you when that first time yeah I must have been um I was working as a private chef. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when um, I decided, well, that was a period when I was trying to figure out a voice yeah, in order to open a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And um, that was when I decided I was going to try and cook a style of Chinese food. And um, the, so, yeah, that's when I asked my grandmother, you know, what kind of... What kind of treasures have you been hiding in this garden <laughs> yeah. all of these years? Yeah, there, there were several things outside of the tune leaves as well. Yeah. Um, things like um, daylilies. Um, mm. And around the same time, the daylily bulbs started what started to appear. And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, you can eat those, too. <laughs> and, it's uh, like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. You're just, like, picking leaves. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, um, yeah. It's like the the Chinese hipster grandparents. They're like doing the noma thing, but um, it's not even a thought. (laughs) It's just like this is what we do. Yeah, (laughs) Um, accidental hipster. Exactly. (laughs) That's so cool. And is there um, a period um, in like spring or summer where Xiangchun is harvested? I mean, I guess you can't get it in the winter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, it is a, a hyper-seasonal food. Okay. Um, the leaves are only edible for, I'd say, three weeks. Um, oh, wow. When they first appear, they have um, a glossy sheen to them, and they're still tender and have um, that wonderful flavor, that uh, that garlickiness. Um, but as time passes, the leaves become more mature, mm-hmm. and they lose that gloss. And flavor-wise, they're more bitter and then texturally, they're just tough. Um, so that that was just like a key moment for me. Like, oh my God, it's like this is a super seasonal ingredient. It's something that, um, so far as I know, I don't think anybody else is serving it fresh in New York. Um, I've heard of it dried, mm-hmm. um, but not fresh. And... Um, so it, the other part of Feng too that's important to me was to try and express something that was soulful as well as original. Yeah. And so to have something like tune leaves, it's like, oh, well, this is unique and this is original. And um, uh, so in that way, it's, it's, it's the most important ingredient. And the tune cloud, the dish that I make with it, is the most important dish to the restaurant. It's personal. It's somehow very Chinese, but also like very American too, in that, um, that traditional egg and tune combination, like, uh, I wanted to highlight the beauty of the leaf. So, um, it was about thinking about, uh, how to make an, 
eggs be the, the supporting cast. Mm. Um, so I, when I was working as a private chef, I, had, I made a dessert for my clients, and it was floating islands, um, a French dessert, uh, which is whipped egg, egg whites whipped into a meringue, mm-hmm. and then they're poached in sweetened milk and then served with um, creme anglaise, like liquid quite, ice cream. quite a classic old dish, right? Yes, it's mm-hmm. a classic dish. Um, and it was like, oh, well, there it is, a meringue. And then what I do is... Well, the way I think is I, was, I took that technique out of context, out of the sweet world, and put it into the savory world. So um, to make the cloud for the tune um, dish, uh, I infuse um, egg whites with um, ginger, garlic, and scallion, which to me are like the, the essential base Chinese ingredients, with star anise, which is my favorite um, Chinese spice, mm-hmm. and then um, whip the... Oh, let the flavor infuse, take the aromatics out, and then whip the egg whites into um, into a meringue, and then poach them in a dashi, so a stock made with seaweed, um, bonito flakes, and those same uh, aromatics, uh, ginger, garlic, and scallion, and star anise. And so it's this poached little cloud. Ser- it's served cold, chilled, mm-hmm. with the chilled broth, and then the leaves on top of it. And... Um, Somehow the smoky, fishy broth really accentuates and complements the um, that kind of nutty or the the garlicky mineralness mm-hmm. of the leaves. That's awesome. So when can customers get this on your menu? They just missed the shot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I served the last one to uh, to Fuchsia Dunlop last week. It was like the last last leaves that we had, um, but uh, generally around it's it's may Mm -hmm. that that's typically the time cool Um, so what are some of the like upcoming seasonal um ingredients you'll be using and incorporating in your menu um i've been seeing melons um hami melons um western chinese uh, melons in the markets in chinatown that's been exciting so Mm -hmm. i started um, buying those, um, I've been noticing lychees, uh, been coming to market and it's interesting, like notions of seasonality. So New York is not subtropical. So I don't think that lychees are, are growing in upstate or in <laughs> Long Island, <laughs> but, but there is this notion like in Chinatown, like, uh, in December, I don't see fresh lychees. Um, but I might see persimmons mm-hmm. and, there's there are these waves of um, when products are available. So fall, winter, start to see persimmons, and then um, winter, spring, uh, bamboo shoots, fresh bamboo shoots, which are so exciting. Um, that that's something that I, I recently discovered within the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, freshly cooked bamboo compared to uh, canned bamboo, yeah. which is tastes like tinny it tastes like a can a can um but fresh bamboo is so so stunning um and moving into uh well then spring and then the snow pea shoots Mm. arrive and that's very exciting and they're very expensive (laughs) Um, i love i love how um it's the rankings of of the chinese produce it's like uh 
most things are $2 or less a pound. And then lo and behold, snow pea shoots, they're like six, ten dollars $10 a pound. And that's why, like, in the, I, my friends are like, oh, my God, like, why is why are snow pea shoots $20 for a plate? Well, they are an expensive raw material. Um, and they're not around all, you know, they're, there's a window when they're available. Um, and those, those are like the, and we're just talking about Chinatown produce now, but at Fung Tu, we'll all, we also go to the Western <laughs> markets too. Um, so, uh, I was there last Saturday and strawberries were around mm-hmm. and zucchini and garlic scapes and different carrots and the radishes and all that. And I'm really looking forward to corn and tomatoes and, um, that uh, idea of cooking locally and um, it's it's not in my opinion something that's just reserved to say French cooking or Italian mm-hmm. cooking um, but that's what's represented in the States in, in New York uh, it's a new American thing um, and I think it's just such a uh, it's so it's just a, a global phenomenon really I mean pre um you know, pre-industrial, complex style uh, um, shopping. Uh, th- everyone was cooking locally, um, and so uh, it just—it's something that just feels natural. Yeah, it's kind of a reclamation of the concept, even or something like that. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna take a really quick break, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Feast Meets West, and we're here talking... Uh, with Jonathan Wu about seasonality and vegetables. Um, so, Jonathan, why do you think um, so many of the Chinese restaurants in New York or some of the other cities don't incorporate as much seasonality in their menus? What a question. Um, <laughs> I The best way I think I can answer that is... Um, I think that a lot of the Chinese restaurants um, are operated by um, folks out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, dating back to the time, the the earliest times when um, the Chinese, when Chinese people were immigrating to the States, I mean, after building the railroads, really only two avenues two industries were open to Chinese immigrants, mm-hmm. laundromats and restaurants. And so I feel like there's a long standing 
tradition of opening restaurants for Chinese immigrants because that's what was open to them. And um, so I think that it's just simply a business mm-hmm. for many folks. But then as um, like a second generation Chinese American, um, I got into it because I had the opportunity to do it. Right. Um, I feel I, I'm very lucky um, that I got to choose to do what I want to do, whereas um, that wasn't the case. That's not the case for many um, Chinese restaurant owners. I think there is this generation of um, Chinese Americans who have made the choice to cook Chinese food. Mm-hmm. And um, because it's a it's a chosen profession, there's this training. So uh, I think that's a big difference to the original um, Chinese cooks in the United States making chop suey. Um, I mean, they were not trained cooks. It was just like something that they had to learn how to do. Um, but the, it's like, say, people in my generation, like we've worked around. And I think of places like um, Tuame, Thomas Chen, mm-hmm. and he's worked at 11 Madison Park and he's, he's trained um, and um, say my friends at Uncle Boone's I mean Anne is uh, she's Thai and mm-hmm. she's worked at lots of great restaurants and um, so there's there's this generation of um, ethnic <laughs> <laughs> cooks um, who have uh, cooking pedigree and are choosing to open restaurants and then so they start to imbue um, the, their chosen cuisines yeah. um, with those sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so with seasonality, um, do you feel like there's um, a pressure to preserve some of that food to make it last as long as possible? Do you use special techniques to <laughs> I love have fun this with question. that? I love this question so much. Yes. Um, in terms of preserving um, the bounty of the season, yeah. um, pickling and fermenting and smoking and drying uh, are all techniques that I love. And um, that um, I've, well, I feel like are such a backbone of, of Chinese food. And um, I've recently just become more and more almost addicted to fermenting foods because I feel like they they give the most powerful flavors um, there's just something about say for example um, well my favorite hams are Spanish hams like jamon iberico um, it, it's, that's a fermented food and it's nature <laughs> and it's, it's one of those things where I, I don't think I could like cook a piece of pork chop from raw and make it taste like quite as good as um, having a, like Mother Nature give you a hand with that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's just it's it's such a powerful flavor, um, and so uh, yeah, the smoking and drying mm-hmm. and fermenting. Um, those are, we've been doing a lot of that. Yeah. Um, so last night, Iris and I were fortunate enough to try um, Jonathan's restaurant, and I noticed in your um, like clam paste um, noodle dish there was like a pickled 
garlic chive ramp kind of ingredient. And that was really cool because it just like broke through like the saltiness of the dish. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, that um, there are pickled ramps, and yeah, bringing that that acidity to that yes, like seasoned uh, mix. Um, yeah, giving those bright notes mm-hmm. really yeah. helps that dish. It allows you to eat like a ton more. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, how long have you had the restaurant now? Do you feel like you know it's evolved? Do you have other projects you're working on? What's next for you? And the restaurant, of course. Um, I've had Fung Tu for nearly four years. We opened in November of 2013. Um, and the restaurant has evolved a lot. Um, it's, I mean, I feel like the, uh, the voice is stronger. And um, the, there's been an evolution um, in terms of the food. Um, I've, I started off, uh, really perhaps to a fault wanting to try and bring, um, a very delicate and subtle sensibility to Chinese Mm -hmm. food. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I forget the actual word for it, but that notion of, um, a balanced meal, the yin and yang thing, um, but very strongly flavored foods and also quote-unquote bland. I, I don't think of it, it's not actually bland, but foods that taste of themselves mm-hmm. and are not highly seasoned. Mm. I think of that as very essential cooking. I mean, it's like, say, what I I think of as what Chez Panisse does, um, like taking a piece of produce and making it taste of itself, mm-hmm. which um, was really appealing to me because um, that's not represented in the U.S. Um, there's, for most American Chinese food, it's like uh, the, the, the ingredients are interchangeable. It's, uh, say, a brown gravy, and it, the protein could be, it could be shrimp, it could be beef, it could be pork, um, it could be chicken. And um, I wanted to go to the opposite of that. Um, but uh, I'm just like, one person <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, um, so I've had to adapt I mm-hmm. mean there's a certain thing that um, well things that are ingrained and in what the dining public accepts as Chinese food um, and I, I accept that too you know I I was hoping to try and contribute to the culture um, mm-hmm. with the restaurant and um, I feel really good about that I feel like I've perhaps achieved that to a degree or um, am trying to achieve that Uh, and um, you know it's also forced me to grow up and become grow as a business person Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess that segues into other projects Um, so my business partner Wilson Tang he owns Namwa Tea Parlor the oldest dim sum parlor in Manhattan and um he is expanding the Namwa brand, uh, opening satellites in Nolita and also um, on Canal Street in Chinatown as well. And um, Fung Tu has been functioning as a commissary for these other projects. Um, running a restaurant in New York City, is, it's really difficult. The margins are low and overhead's really high. So 
most all of us now have side hustles. It's yeah. not like, oh, we just run a restaurant. Um, people are doing catering. They're doing delivery. They're doing events. Mm-hmm. And um, so acting as a commissary for the, the Namwa satellites is Feng Chu side hustle. And there's probably that will continue as Namwa continues to, uh, to grow. Yeah, it's a very New York mentality. Always a side hustle. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but yeah, and I guess, you know, if people were to say your name in the industry, Jonathan Wu, what would you most like to be known for? Um, I would love to have a reputation of being someone who... Um, treats their staff well and um, has been uh, has had integrity in terms of um, vision you know Mm -hmm. Uh, as much as I've had to adapt the food um, I feel like I've um, stayed true to what Fung Tu is Mm -hmm. in that hometown cooking culture and um, uh, so those two things that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's a shame when, you know, someone in the industry, like, pre- like makes amazing food, but their reputation is just ruined by, like, oh, wow, you know, he doesn't treat people well or doesn't have integrity. So, yeah, it's a good, that's a good one. But, yeah, that's all about, that's all the time we have for today. Um, so, Jonathan, for listeners who want to learn more about Feng Tu and what you do, how can they stay connected online? Um, through our Instagram account, which is um, Fung2, and um, we're on Twitter as well, and Facebook, and um, our website, Fung2.com. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, listeners. It was an absolute pleasure to be in the studio in person this week, and while I'll be back in Hong Kong for the next episode, I already can't wait to return for my next in-person recording. Yeah, come back. (laughs) Come back, Iris. Um, And if there are any new listeners tuning in for the first time, just a quick reminder that you can subscribe to Feast Meets West on iTunes and Stitcher, stream our episodes on feastmeetswest.com or heritageradionetwork.org and follow what we're up to and what we're eating on our Facebook or Instagram where our handle is at feastmeetswesteats. We'll be back next week with another awesome conversation from the world of Asian food. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.